Um, kids are going to go through that door, and youth are in the back with Pastor Bree. This morning we are continuing through the book of Luke. Um, as we've been talking the last few weeks, we've said that kind of a good framing of this book is good news for the lost. Um, so we've looked at different groups that, that find good news in Jesus or find the good news is Jesus. Uh, this morning we're going to be talking about a, a different kind of group, um, a group that I think within our culture is, you know, not necessarily lifted up. Um, a group that's found within ourselves and a group that we may not be as willing to admit that we are a part of. Um, but, but the joy of who our God is is that our God meets us and our God finds us. And, and one of the blessings of our God is that he's our shepherd. So this morning, as we talk about needs and what it is to have needs, what it is to be even needy, right? Um, in our culture, those two things are, are very, very distinct, right? We can admit that as human we have needs, but in our culture, we don't want to be needy. And so there's a, there's a tension of that, right? Um, the basic breakdown of needs, at least as I've been taught, comes from Maslow. Um, you have the hierarchy of needs. You probably got that at some point in school, right? So the basic breakdown that Maslow gives is that I think one of the things that we, we kind of maybe, I don't say differentiate, but one of the things we, we need to hold with Maslow is that one, it's a theory, right? Like he is saying, this is how, like when I look at the human condition, when I look at humans, this is how it makes sense to me, right? Like this is how the breakdown is. This is how people are motivated by how they act and what they do. So it's a theory. But I think the other thing about Maslow is that it is not necessarily all like, set in stone, which also makes it a theory, right? Meaning that like this order might work for maybe 99% of people, but there's also 1% that's not gonna work. And I'll show you different ways it doesn't work. But if you're not familiar with Maslow's hierarchy, it basically goes like this, right? You have the physiological level, right? At the foundation, meaning that like, before people are gonna be motivated to anything, they gotta be fed, right? Like they can't be hungry. Right? Water is not only part of most of our world, but it's part of most of us, right? They need to be fed. They can't be hungry. They need rest. They need to have shelter, right? Like base level, physiologically, they need to have that, right? Then if you build up to the next step, he'll say safety is important. So for some people, that's security. Um, for some people, that is health. For some people, it's employment, right? Whatever their idea of safety is, that's the next level. And then if you build on top of that, then the next need would be love and belonging, right? So this is intimate relationships. This is friends. This is family. This is feeling like you belong to part of something. Then built on top of that is what he called esteem, right? This is our need to be respected, our need to, to have status, to have freedom, right? To have recognition for, for maybe the gifts that we have or the gifts that we are, right? To have recognition for who we are and what we do. And then lastly, he'll say self-actualization. Like you've made it now. You're perfectly motivated as a human. And there he'll say there's your full potential as a person. There's your, your full potential for morality or creativity. Again, physiological, safety, love and belonging, esteem, self-actualization. But like that's just his theory of how it's made up. But we're complex people who live in a complex world who deal with complex other people and complex other conditions, right? So you might have for people who, for example, have been exposed to severe trauma, right? And I've seen this. Like even before food, water, and shelter, they need to feel safe. 
So their primary foundation isn't going to be food or shelter. And I've seen this, where it's like people will not care about what they eat if they are not safe. Right? So that is not, like, that's just their makeup of this hierarchy of needs. Then there's some of us out here who are artists, right? The idea that your artistry or your creativity is the last thing is, like, bonkers to them, right? Like, it's just like there's no world they can imagine where they're not creating, right? If you say eat, they're like, no, I got to draw, right? Like, I got to paint. I got I to gotta do this, right? So, again, like, what Maslow is saying is that as humans, we have these needs. But I think what I want to say to you this morning is as humans, our needs are complex, and not only are they complex, they come from different things and then in different seasons of life, right? I've seen artists where, you know, maybe as a young 20-something, art is number one, right? And then at some point they blink and art doesn't matter as much anymore. It matters, but it's not their breath in their life, right? So not only do we complex in how we stack up our needs, but we also change in the season. And I think part of the reason, and I think what Maslow has, has stuck all these years, is because one of the things I think to, to really define the human condition is that to need is to be human. And I think that's something we have to hold on to. And the reason we have to hold on to it is because I think we live within a culture and a context and a country where to need is a bad thing. It's almost like when Alexander Pope says to err is human, right? We've kind of redefined that as to need is, is human, right? And that's bad because you shouldn't want to be a needy person. But I think that the important things is, 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 is that when we look at whether it's what we need physically, what we need emotionally, what we need spiritually, right? What we need to, to be our best selves, what we need to feel like we belong. None of these are inherently bad things. To need is human. Your needs are not a sign of weakness. You know, there's a lot of people who, 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 within the context of our culture, you have to look like you've got it all together all the time, right? You've got to look like you've got it all figured out all the time. You've got to be maybe the strong one, right? There's a lot of us who grow up thinking that, like, having any sign of need is to be weak. Having any sign of lack is to be weak. And that's not true. Having needs just makes you human. There's also a lot of us, right? I, I know a lot of times you see this in Bible, Bible stories, and we've been talking about this for a couple weeks. And I'm sure we never do this, right? But some people, not anyone in this room, but some people sometimes see needs as character flaws, right? They'll be like, why are you poor? Well, because you, you don't work hard enough, right? You didn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps high enough, right? Like there's some people who look at needs as if you lack some moral character, right? You're needy. You have not because you're not good enough is the message we essentially say. And one of the most fascinating things in this country is of all, or even the West, I should say, as a whole. We'll, we'll, we'll spare America this morning. We'll go the whole West, right? One of the most fascinating things, especially in America, but in the West, is that we've had all this technology, all this advancement, right? But one of the things that stayed steady relatively, especially in our country, is poverty, right? We live within a culture and a context where the poverty line has stayed the same. For some reason, we can't figure that part out. And it helps, or hurts, really, that, like, everything keeps getting more expensive, Right? But the cost of living or a living wage is something that's seen as wild, right? 
You want to do some fun this afternoon? You want to just cheer yourself up? I want you to look up the average prices of homes 50 years ago. And then I want you to look at the average prices of homes today. Then I want you to look at the, the average price of, of, of college 50 years ago. Then I want you to look at the average price of college today. Then I want you to look at the average certain earning salary of someone 50 years ago and the average earning salary of someone today. And the saddest thing about all this is that all these things have in some cases gone up 20 times, but the minimum wage has not. We live in a society and culture where we see poverty as lack, yet we uphold systems that keep people poor. And when people, poor people, actually say we deserve a living wage, we look at them like they're bonkers. How can the price of housing go up 20 times, the house of college go up 10 times or more, and we still expect people in our great state of Pennsylvania to only make $7.25 an hour? Being poor is not a character flaw. Needing other people around you and community and feeling love and belonging is not a character flaw. Having a need is not a character flaw. And even more than that, to we, the people of faith, having needs are not due to a lack of faith. We do well to critique prosperity gospel, right? You believe in God and he'll expand your territory, right? You believe in God and you'll be blessed with all the riches, right? And we mean material riches, right? We do well to critique that, but we also do well to critique the fact that people having needs does not mean they don't belong to God, does not mean that they don't believe in God, does not mean that your faith is better than them because you're in a better situation than them. Faith is not determined by the needs we have. Quite often it's the world we live in and the systems we uphold and the ones we have access to. Having needs, it's not character flaw. It's not a lack of faith. So what are our needs then? If to need is human and we have all these things and we're complex and we, whether it's food or shelter or love or belonging or creativity and artistry, if to need is human, what are our needs then? I think our story this morning points us to the fact that perhaps, just perhaps, our needs, the places where we lack, the things that we need that we can't solve ourselves, Perhaps, my sisters and brothers, that's God's entry point to us. Because if we are indeed self-sufficient and we can do it on our own, we don't often look to God for help. But if we get to the place of overwhelmed, of not doing it on our own, of not being able to figure out, perhaps there God can be entering in. Because here in our culture, we downplay the needs that we have in our families, in our relationships, in our workplaces even, right? In our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our cities, in our country. We downplay the needs we have because we don't want to be needy. But the need is human. And we downplay the needs that we have because whether or not we like to admit it, we believe in the myth of self-sufficiency. We believe to some degree that we can do it on our own or we'll figure it out, right? We believe that we can figure it all out. We can do it all on our own. We are self-sufficient people. We are not needy people. And if that reeks of pride, it's because it's prideful. If you think you can make it on your own, that's pride. If you think you've gotten here on your own, that's also pride. Because all of us are a miracle. 
physiologically, you're a miracle. Just look at the science of what it takes to be a human, right? Like, go from literally the, 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 the fermentation of the egg to the egg actually reaching or working its way through the womb to actually becoming a person. Just read about that. Just go on Google, right? Just read about it. It's a miracle that you're even here. The cell that becomes a person is a miracle. But then it's a miracle that your parents got together to make you. And it's a miracle that their parents got together and make them, right? And you go back and you go back and you see that there's generations upon generations of miracle just for you to be here. Not only do we get nowhere on our own, we can't even exist on our own. We wouldn't be in existence or we are in existence not because of anything we've done. Not only do we not make it on our own, not only are we not self-sufficient, our reason for being isn't even our own. Furthermore, a lot of us who grow up maybe as the strong one or in our family situations where we're the stable one, right? We're the one that everyone can lean on. We sometimes struggle with expressing our needs because we don't want to inconvenience the people around us. And I call this Central Pennsylvanian. We're really good at this one. We're really good at this one. Like you say, like, especially in this church, you're like, we don't believe in self-sufficiency. Yeah, yeah, we're Anabaptists. Of course we don't believe in self-sufficiency. Like, we're a community, right? We believe that one. That one's easy. You say that, like, we're prideful. The pride is bad. We're like, yeah, we're not. We're a humble people. We're so humble, we're the humblest of all the people. That's how humble we are. But this one, I don't think any good central Pennsylvania can deny. We would rather suffer <laughs> than inconvenient other people sometimes. We would rather take it all on, even though it's breaking our back, than say help. Right? We're so good. And that's why I'm saying we all believe in self-sufficiency. And we all got to go to the altar this morning. Because part of self-sufficiency is not asking for help. Part of self-sufficiency is thinking you can figure it all out. Part of self-sufficiency is like, I don't want to bother you. It's like, excuse me, you're dying. It's okay. <laughs> you can bother me when you're drowning, right? Like, if you're just sitting at the poolside, don't bother me. I want to sit at the poolside too. But if you're drowning, at least go, 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 so I can hear you. Right? Like, that makes sense, at least to me. But I think the other reason we downplay our neediness it's not just because we believe in self-sufficiency or it's our pride talking or we don't want to inconvenience others. I think the other real reason we downplay neediness is because we feel not just alone, but we've learned to be islands. We've learned to be islands. And we might say no person is an island, but that's not how we live. We don't live in a way that when we have needs, we have people around us we can express them to. We don't live in a way that, that when we have lack, we have people we trust to be vulnerable to. We don't live in a way that people who are walking with us can navigate these hard times with us. We don't live in a way where we actually are this community we say we love and want to be a part of. We don't live in communion with one another. So it's hard for us to express our needs. If I'm not that close to you, I'm not going to be like, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. Right? I'm just not going to offer that up. Instead, we're both going to be isolated. We're both going to be on an island. We're both going to be faking the funk, if you want to will. Right? We're both going to be putting on a face instead of opening up our hearts. And that's what's complicated about needs. We have them, but we don't know how to share them. 
We, we have them, but we think it's, it's some side, uh, uh, side, instead of the lack being what we need or what we, we need to have, we look at it as character flaws or not having enough faith. But if needs are the entry point, what do we have that God has given us to help answer some of these needs? And I think that's a helpful background, foundation, to look at the passage this morning. Because when we go into this story, you hear about Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath and healing the man with the withered hand. I think deeper than Jesus moving for a miracle, we find a God who meets our need. And I don't know about you this morning, but whatever needs you're holding on to, whatever needs you have, whatever lack that's in your life, praise God who's our shepherd, amen. Praise God who provides. Praise God who protects. Praise God who sees, who hears, who comes down, who touches. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 1 to 11. Um, We'll have them up front so you can follow there as well. Luke 6, starting at verse 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he, was in, when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawfully only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? to save life or to destroy it. He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray to God. Father God, we thank you so much that you are indeed the God who meets our needs. So God, we thank you that you know our needs. Help us to know them too. So many times we're, we're living in a society, in a culture, maybe we're raised in families or in environments where we think our needs are so secondary or tertiary that they never come up to light. And some of us don't even know how to verbalize what we need. So we ask for help for that. Thank you that you know them, but help us to know them too. But help us to experience you moving to meet where we lack. You shepherding because we need provision. We need protection. We need you. So God, help us to not only know our needs and to experience you moving to meet our needs, but help us to rest in you. Knowing that you are good, knowing that you're faithful, knowing that you're compassionate, knowing that your mercy, your grace, your love, you're for us. And it's that God that we know, the movement of God that we experience, and the rest that we have will inspire us to keep relying on you. In your holy and precious name. Amen. So this passage is, is really, really fascinating because in this passage, like I said, a lot of times we read this, we're like, it's great miracles. Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is, is, is the one who's, who heals the man with the withered hand. 
But I think this passage is more, uh, is about more than just authority. Jesus is indeed Lord of the Sabbath, which for most of us, that sounds like a cute little title. It's like, oh, that's cool. I, I don't know what that means, but it sounds good, right? What Jesus is saying to the people of the law, to the people of the book, to the teachers who spent their lifetime not just learning the, the 600 plus Levitical laws, right? But that wasn't enough. Some of them will say 619, but it depends on your rabbi, right? You might get a little feisty and go 618 or 617. I don't know. Want to get feisty with it, right? But it's about 619 at the very least, right? But that wasn't good enough, so they spent the rest of their lives and for generations now adding on to it. Right? So you talk about the Sabbath law and this law against working. They're like, not only are you not to work, you can't even appear to be working. And so you have some cultures, even to this day, who will define what work is for you. Now, most of us, when we think about work, we think about going into 9 to 5, right? They will define it as, like, not breaking a sweat, <laughs> not walking far enough. Like, when I was a kid, I, I, when I first started going to high school in North Philly, I discovered Jewish people were in Philadelphia. It was a mind-blowing experience, right? In Southwest Philly, there were no Jews, right? Like, it just didn't exist to me. So when I got to North Philly, I'm like, wow, there's synagogues. This is amazing. And I was shocked to know that certain people would live within a certain vicinity of the synagogue so they can walk to synagogue on Saturday because they didn't want to break the rule on work. And so it's easy for us to be like, well, that just seems silly. But again, these were people who were founded not just in what we would call legalism, but they just wanted to please God. And for them, coming close to even not pleasing God was enough to stay away from that you needed to put fences around the laws, right? So not only do you not want to break the law, you don't even come close to it. So you have decades, generations, centuries of added on laws. To these are the people who are steeped in it. And this is who Jesus is speaking to. He walks into this setting to say, listen, all that law that we're giving, I'm greater than it. All that law that was given was given by me, actually. That I am indeed the God who made that covenant with you, but I'm greater than the law. And certainly all the extra ones y'all added, I'm definitely far greater than that too. These are fighting words from Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Right? He's going into their territory. Like, I don't even know how else to bring it in our day and scenes, right? Imagine someone is very specialized in a special kind of medicine, right? And you walk in and you just say, listen, everything you believe, not that good enough. I originate it all. In fact, let me teach you about what you'd already know, right? And put that, whatever field you work in, put that in your field. Like, none of us will feel good about that. It's easy for us to just, like, look at these Pharisees and be like, oh, my goodness, look at their pride, Right? And some of us don't even like our wives telling us how to do the dishwasher. You know? Like, some of us don't even like that, right? I'm not saying me. Why y'all looking at me all judgmentally? Like, I don't like that feeling, right? But seriously, some of us don't even like the petty stuff, people telling us what to do. And, and so we, we kind of chastise these Pharisees, right? But they knew the law. They knew it and studied it their whole lives. And for generations, they built on it. Yet Jesus is coming in and be like, everything you know, you've missed the point. Right? Like everything you've believed, you've kind of believed it wrong. You're like halfway there, you're 50, let me at least get you to 66 so you can pass. Right? Like this was fighting words to people who thought they knew everything. And, but what's interesting though is that we still see at this point Pharisees submitting to Jesus' teaching. 
at this point, we still see them going where he's going and listening to what he's teaching. Now, our passage says that maybe they're doing it for a different motivation now, but they're still there. And it's a reminder to us that whenever we gather, we don't know who all's in the audience. We don't know where all everyone's coming from. But at the very end of this story or throughout this story, you'll see that no matter whether they were Pharisees or disciples, no matter whether they were close to Jesus or looking to find ways to end Jesus, they were all going to see one thing, and that's God moving. And I love that. I love that for the man with the withered hand. I love that for the disciples, and I love that for us. Because it gives me faith that no matter where I am on the journey, no matter where you are on the journey, when God moves, all will see. And so that's what happens in the story. You have Jesus meeting the needs of his people. Now, we've said last week when Jesus heals, it's to bring God glory. We said last week when Jesus heals, it's testimony for the community. But here we take those two things and we see Jesus simply just meeting the needs of his people. So this passage is about more than authority because this passage is about faith. And all of us need faith. And I'm not just saying the first time you put your faith in Jesus. I'm saying all of us need faith every single day. However much faith you have, you need more. We need faith that God can meet our needs. Because there's some of us in this room where there's certain needs that we have. We go by Maslow's chart. We may not be worried about food or shelter, but we might be worried about belonging. We may not be worried uh, about self-esteem and, and confidence, right? But we may be worried about whether or not our creativity can be expressed in a way that's good and pleasing to God. Or whether or not we can actually be ourselves. We may not be worried about certain things. But every single one of us in this room has a need, has a series of needs. And even deeper than that, we have needs that perhaps can only be met by Jesus himself. Faith that God can meet our needs is what we need. Every single day, we have to invest in God and put our trust in God to meet our needs. Because the moment we stop Trusting on God to meet our needs is the moment our faith begins to erode that God can even meet our needs. And then the islands that we've gotten so good to living on become even more isolated. And we become people of isolation and loneliness with not only a community without, not only a community not around us or a community that we can't see, but we become this island and we believe that our God can't even see us. We need faith to believe that God can meet our needs. We need faith that the God who sees is also the God who hears. I think there's a lot of us who can accept the fact that God sees everything. It makes sense. He's God, right? Like he's over everything, right? I think God sees everything. But maybe this morning we need to know that God doesn't just see everything. God sees me. That God doesn't just hear everything. God hears me. We need faith to believe that the God of the universe is the God who hears my cries. That the God over all things is the God who's working on my behalf. That the God who's the God of the world 
is the God who's going to work things out for my good. We need faith that the God who sees is the God who hears us. <coughs> we also need faith that the God who's whole is the God who fills our lack. I love this concept from A.W. Tozer because he says that, you know, God is whole, right? He's perfectly just. He's perfectly loving. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly compassionate. God's not like a sum of the parts, right? You don't get to make up a formula and say, oh, God, 50% love, 2% grace, 7% compassion. God is not the sum of God's parts. God is just God. God is everything all the time. And we're the complete opposite of that, aren't we? Because you might catch me on a day where I'm 50% love, but I'm also 50% judgment that day. You might catch me on a day where you cut me off on a road where I might happen to be 99% judgment in that moment. Right? Like, like, like we are the sum of our parts. And so that's what makes us human in a sense, right? We are the sum of our parts, but God is whole. And because God is whole, every lack that you have can be met by God. Because God is whole, there's no lack you can introduce to God that God can't help fill. <coughs> we need faith that this God who's whole can fill us where we lack. And so if we have faith that God can meet our needs, if we have faith that the God who sees everything hears us, if we have faith that the God who's whole can fill us, then perhaps we can have faith that in our hour of need, at this hour of need, God can not only hold us, but God can carry us through. And I think that's the joy of this story for me this week. That I don't think the disciples woke up that morning saying, it's Sabbath, we're just going to go hungry. Right? Like, it's Sabbath, we don't know what to do with food, right? But they knew that Jesus would meet the need. And I'm even more certain that the man with the withered hand just went to worship that morning. That even though his entire life was defined by some of the things we've been talking about, right? He had a withered hand. He had a deformity. In that culture, that was seen as what? Lack of faith. That was seen as the sin of either he did or somebody in the line sinned against God. Somebody did something wrong. That's why the baby like this, right? Like somebody sinned was what he understood. But even deeper than that, Luke points out that it was his right hand. And in that culture, your right hand signified some of the stuff that Maslow talked about, right? Security, employment, uh, ability to express yourself, ability to feel like you belong. He had all that stripped away from me because of his disability. And I think there's so much that people who have disabilities can teach us who are able bodies. There's so much they can teach us. There's so much we take for granted. And so you have this man who didn't wake up that morning saying, you know what, I'm going to pray, I'm going to go to the temple, and today will be the day of my healing. We never know when healing is coming, but we need faith that healing is coming. We never know when God's going to move. We need faith that God's going to move. And so in this story, Jesus shows up. And these people, that what's happening in Luke 6 is that our Lord is on trial already. He doesn't have to wait till Gethsemane. He doesn't have to wait to be arrested. He doesn't have to wait to go before Pontius Pilate. Jesus is on trial, meaning that they've already started to side-eye him. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. When Jesus said, I'm the Messiah, the Savior of the world, they said, this is amazing. Oh, awesome. 
We're so glad you're finally here. It's about time. <laughs> We've been waiting. We thought it was like a quick thing you were going to do. You've been generations. Thank you for coming, right? And then when Luke said, when Luke, through the words of Jesus, says, no, 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 no. But I came not just for Israel, but for the world. They're like, oh, we got to kill him. Like, that was literally the reaction, right? Like, we're so glad you're here, Jesus, Messiah, Savior of Israel. I'm here for the world. Now nah, you got to die now. Like, that was the reaction to Jesus saying, I'm Messiah of the world. So we know they're building a case against him. They're side-eyeing him. The second thing is that Jesus' fame continues to grow. Luke keeps pointing this out. And I think this is helpful for us because we tend to think of the Jesus movement as this small thing that was small forever. But according to Luke, it's taken over an entire region. And if that region of Galilee was about 3 million, I keep telling us, like, that's the entire size of Philadelphia and the suburbs. Now, that's tricky because Philadelphia suburbs keeps expanding, right? There's people in Harrisburg who be like, I live in the suburbs of Philadelphia. No, you do not. <laughs> you do not. Like, I don't know where the suburbs end, but when you get to a whole nother city, right? Like, you don't live in Philly anymore, right? I'm saying that mostly to myself, but it's fine, right? <laughs> this was a whole region of people who are hearing the things of Jesus, who are growing in this movement every week. Like when you get to this Gospels, I think this is helpful because when you get to the Gospel stories of, hey, he fed 5,000, not including women and children, that helps you understand that like more than likely that day he fed 10,000 or 15,000. Right? Like Jesus was a huge movement of God amongst the people that God first called. Like, this is a huge movement going on. So the fame was growing. They all knew the stories. And when God moves, God truly moves. It's hard for anyone to deny. So even though the Pharisees are side-eyeing him, they got him on trial, they cannot deny there's something different about this one. He used to be a carpenter, but now he's baptizing people, saying he's the Messiah, saying he's for the world. He used to be just a carpenter, but now he's healing people, making blind see, making lame walk. There's something different. We don't know what's different about him. We don't agree with what's different about him, but there's something different. And aren't we like that too? We may not agree with it, but if it's got enough buzz, we're going to check it out. Right? We may not like what's going on, but we at least got to see what's going on. And so these Pharisees, uh, they, they see that, you know, his fame was growing. And in fact, the, the, the passage right before Luke 6, Jesus gets accused, right, of not being the, the right kind of Messiah again. They're like, listen, man, we know John, right? We don't even like that guy too much. He eats crickets. He's a little weird, doesn't believe in showers, right? Like he's one of those people who washes in the water and thinks that's good enough, right? Invent soap, John, invent soap, right? But we don't really know him, but we know that his disciples, at least, they fast, they pray, <laughs> you know, they go about things the right way. But you, like, you're eating with tax collectors. No one likes tax collectors. Like, these people literally built their careers stealing from us, right? We talk about opposing systems that are against us. They are the system. They're against all of us, and yet you're eating with them. Like, you're literally fraternizing with the enemy. Like, why would you expose yourself to fellowship with people who are stealing from us? And you know Jesus' answer. I love This is one of my favorite things about Jesus. Like, I love when people are like, Jesus is meek and mild. I say, no, no, no. Jesus got mouth. In my culture, that means Jesus is cheeky, right? It means that he will put you in your place. Whatever you need to phrase that, you do it, right? Because they're like, Jesus, your disciples party and drink all the time. And Jesus is like, well, listen, it's not the healthy people who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come not to call you righteous people, but what? Sinners to repentance. That's cheek. 
Like, no one will feel good. Imagine accusing someone of something, and Jesus is like, well, I'm not even here for you. I'm here for them. Like, what do you say to that? You lost. The entire argument over, right? And, and so they're, 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 they're right before, they're side-eyeing Jesus because his fame is growing, side-eyeing Jesus because the movement is getting bigger, side-eyeing him because he wants to somehow save the world, side-eyeing him because his disciples worship differently. They're not fasting and praying like John. And now in our passage, they're doing work on the Sabbath. And that's tricky because we still haven't figured this out yet, right? doesn't matter who your favorite biblical theologian is. Everyone just has a theory, just like Maslow, right? But there's a theory that the, the Greek for rubbing hands together was seen as work, right? Like the fact that they had to pick the grain was seen as work. And, and so for us, it might seem a little ridiculous because it is, right? But it was a little ridiculous that, that feeding yourself was seen as work. And so Jesus walks into this where he was just like, listen, if my people are hungry, I'm going to feed them. I'm going to make a way for them to be fed. And again, I said, if you're going to argue with people, argue with yourself. Don't argue with Jesus. You never win. Right? Because they're just like, your disciples are working on the Sabbath. They're daring to rub their hands to, to get the kernels to eat. And Jesus is like, well, that's interesting. Remember this guy named David? Oh, he's your greatest king, right? Remember, remember what he did? He wasn't in the fields. He came into the temple. Not only did he come into the temple, he went into the room, the showroom. Not only was he in the showroom, he got the bread that's only for the priest. And not only did he eat it, he passed it out like hotcakes. Like, how is that okay? But hungry people feeding themselves, it's not okay. And I love that there's no response because that tells me there is no response. If you're going to yell at Jesus saying your disciples can't pick kernels, and Jesus is going to be like, what about David? You thought that was cool. There's nothing you can say to that. The hypocrisy hits them so deeply that they're paralyzed by their own hypocrisy. And Jesus here is asserting the fact that, yes, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Because David did worse than you excused it. But here's the thing. Not only am I greater than David, I am God. And Jesus reintroduces this idea to the people who supposedly know the law the most. That meeting the needs of the people will always supersede the laws that we invent. Feeding the hungry, loving your neighbor, welcoming the stranger will always matter more than what your U.S. Congress says. It will always matter more than what your dad or your grandfather says. It will always matter more than even what you say. Jesus has examples and examples in the Old Testament where feeding and loving your neighbor superseded any other law. And they knew this. They just refused to see it. And so he calls them out and says, basically, listen, I'm here to meet the needs of my people. And it's funny because he paralyzes them. The argument ends, and another Saturday comes along, another Sabbath comes along, and they're doing what? They got him side-eyed again. Like, they're like listening to him preach and teach, but they're not really listening. They're just waiting. They're like, oh, ha-ha, the man with the withered hand is here. And most of us would be like, you know what? Jesus does miracles. Maybe we should pray that, you know, Jesus sees him and Jesus can heal him. That's not what they did. They're like, hmm. We're going to see what he's going to do now because you know you can't, you definitely can't heal on the Sabbath. And so they're having these thoughts in their head. And just like last week, Jesus, because he's God, knows even the thoughts in our head. And so Jesus recognizes what they're thinking already. 
right? He knows their thoughts. He knows he's on trial. And what I love about this is Jesus does not back down. Jesus does not attack. But Jesus focuses on the need of the man with the withered hand. Needs, when expressed, are not seen as threat, are seen as lack of faith, are seen as simply just lack. Jesus centers him. Jesus calls him to the middle. Imagine this guy is probably embarrassed, right? Feels like he doesn't belong. Feels like no one, he might even believe the lies, right? He might think, I'm not good enough for God. That's why my hand is like this. Or I don't know what great granddad did, but it's his fault my hand's like this, right? He had a whole narrative, I guarantee you, in his head of why he believed he was like this, maybe, right? And, and, and he's probably shrinking off in the corner, literally. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And instead of backing down, he says, no, 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 I need you to come front and center because I want them to see this. When God's ready to move, he will reveal who he is. And that's what Jesus does. So the man comes front and center. And Jesus asks this wonderful question, right? Is it, which is more lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And there's no way they could have answered, yes, Jesus, you should do evil. Yes, Jesus, you know what? We don't really like you, but you should just let him die. Like, that's the answer, right? And so he tells the man to, to stretch out his hand. And that's interesting because the Old Testament not only called you to love of neighbor, but one of the things that superseded the Sabbath law and thus the fence laws is that if someone was dying, or in a life-challenging position, you could break the law to save them. And they all knew it. So if Jesus says, listen, he's not just disabled and an outsider. He can't even work for himself. I'm going to save his life, not just by restoring his hand or healing his hand. He can now provide for himself in a way he couldn't do it before. What is worse, to break your law or to follow God's law? to let him suffer, or to bring him healing. Jesus gifts the miracle. And the saddest thing about the miracle, and we've been saying this throughout the book of Luke, is that God moves and the people still miss it. And every time that happens, it haunts me. Because it tells me that it's possible for God to move in a powerful way, and I miss it too. And so part of our needs here is opening our eyes or asking God to open our eyes for us to see him moving, to open our hearts for us to see him loving, to open our ears for us to hear the call that he has, not just on us, but on the world around us. And this is what I love about our Jesus. And this is why our Jesus is good news for all of us in this room, good news for all of us who are needy. Because while to need is human, praise God, he's our shepherd. When David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? There's some translations who are actually translating it better and say, I shall not lack. Because to need might be human, but for some of us, to want is even more human. Right? But what David is saying is that I'm relying on God because there's nothing I need that God cannot provide. That's the kind of faith I pray for all of us to have.
that there's nothing that we need that our God cannot provide. Because if he's our shepherd, he's going to feed us. He's going to protect us. He's going to give us rest. He's going to be there for us. He's going to lead us. He's going to grow us. He's going to challenge us. He's going to be on our side, working for our good. We may have need, but praise God, Jesus is our shepherd. I think the other thing we get from this story is that none of us are self-sufficient, but let us pray that that's okay. Because that's something that, again, we're central Pennsylvania. We're going to have to fight this, most of us, our whole lives, right? We're going to have to fight that I can do it on my own. I can figure it all out. If I need help, I'll ask. But first, let me drown, and then I'll ask for help, right? Like, we have to lose the desire to do it on our own. We are not self-sufficient, and that's okay. That's why Jesus gifted us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. That's why Jesus gave us the body of Christ, the physical body in this community that we're in, the community around the world, but also the generations and billions of Christians who've come before who all inform our faith today. This is why we belong to the body of Christ, because we're not meant to do it on our own. We don't have to do it on our own. We must lose this desire to do it on our own. And the third thing I want us to hold on to is that being able to identify where we lack. Maybe it's patience. Maybe it's trusting God with a certain aspect of my health or a certain aspect of my finances or all my kids, right? Like, they might not be in the house anymore. I don't know how they're doing out there. Like, maybe that's what I'm struggling with, right? Don't let that need that you feel that you can't just eliminate. Some of us think if we just knock it out of our mind, it means we're better Christians for it. We're better people for it, right? We just don't think about it anymore. No, 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 no. Let your needs be your pathway back to God. If you can't do something on your own, give it to him. That's why he's God and you are not. Don't let what you lack be a sign that you don't belong. Let it be a sign that you can give this to God too because some of these needs that we have, only God can fulfill. Amen? And the last thing, and this is like, I, I was looking at my notes. I haven't shared this quote, I think, all year, so I'm very excited about it. But if you've been here more than six months, you've heard me use this quote. But I think if we say that the need is human and God is our shepherd, we can praise him for that. If we say we're not self-sufficient, that's why God gives us a spirit in the body, we can praise him for that because we're not self-sufficient that's okay. If we say where we lack is our path of reliance or our pathway back to God, that's okay. But Luke is very communal in his thinking. When God moves, it's not for you, it's for the community. So I was trying to think in this story, where is God moving for the community? And I think this might be it. Because not only do we have lack and need within ourselves, but if we open our eyes and take it off of ourselves and look into our world, we'll see that our world has needs and lacks too. And so the goal of us, or one of the goals for us to shine our lights as Jesus has called us to be, is that where our world lacks, I believe that's where God calls us to fill. And it's my Beekner quote. Here's the, the, the seven times a year I use it. It's one of them, right? The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. I love that quote for so many reasons. Because, yes, it informs me that the world might have hunger, but it also informs me that God is not just going to send us to fill that hunger, but he's going to give us joy doing it too. That serving God and loving your neighbor should not be a burden, 
that it's going to be a joy. And it's not just the joy that, that people are going to feel from having their needs met. It's the joy that you're going to feel by being part of God moving in that person's life. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God, all of us creatures here below. And may we praise God by giving him our needs, by opening up our lives to be helped with our needs, and by maybe, just maybe, opening up ourselves so that God can help us to help someone else's needs. Amen? This morning we'll be um, concluding our, our ser service with communion, taking communion together, um, celebrating the new life that we have in Jesus. Hopefully as you came in, you're able to get some of the elements at the door. If you did not, just raise your hand. I think there's going to be people in the back who will go back and help you. Um, so if you just need stuff, just raise your hand. We'll do that. Again, this is just celebrating the new life that we have in Jesus. In our Luke passage this morning, the disciples were hungry. And um, the, they ate the heads of grain. And Jesus recounted the story of David and his companions eating the consecrated bread when they were hungry. The questions for us this morning is, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Where are you needing the Lord? Please join us now in our responsive reading together. This one, the first one will be taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, One way we keep the feast of our Passover lamb is to share in the Lord's Supper. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake of the bread and the cup. The table of the Lord is for all who believe, not necessarily people who are only members of this church. It's for all who have received Christ Jesus as Lord. We now invite you to come to this table, not because we must, but because we may. We come to testify not that we are perfect, but that we sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. We come, not because we are strong, but because we are weak. Not because we have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in our frailty we stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before us, let us lift up our minds and hearts above all selfish fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to, to us the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and the hope of Jesus' promised return. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much that you are indeed the bread of life. We thank you that not only the spiritual hunger, but all the hunger that we have, all the thirst that we were, holding all the lack that we have was met in you lord you came to give yourself for us we thank you for this bread and this represents your body that was broken for us we thank you for the love that you so freely give we thank you for the suffering that you endured we thank you that you were broken so that we can be made whole so lord we thank you now as we come to this table giving you all the praise all the glory for you god died 
so that we can be set free. Thank you for being the bread of life. Thank you for giving us that life more abundantly. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's join now in our second communion response. My sisters and brothers, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the bread is it not the communion of the body of Christ? This bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your hearts and be thankful. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing. And he told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's join in prayer again. We thank you, uh, Lord, for this cup. We thank you for the blood that was shed on our behalf. We thank you that you poured yourself out uh, for us, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins. So this morning, Lord, we confess them to you. Uh, we trust you to make us whole. We thank you for the righteousness that we have through you. We thank you that you did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And so as we take the cup this morning, Lord, we remember um, what you did on our behalf. Thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's join in the response. My brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? This cup of blessing which we bless is the communion of the blood of Christ. Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. Whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Through his death, we have hope and life. And each time we share in communion, we look forward to his return, when we will experience that life and communion in its fullness. Until that day, we need the Lord. We need his help. We need his power. We need his presence. Amen. I'd like to invite up the worship team. Um, we're going to be closing our service um, singing, Lord, I need you. Um, as they come up, we as pastors will also be up here in the front. We'd love to pray for you, um, either in response to something in the service or wherever you're feeling need or lack. Or maybe there's someone on your mind. We'd love to pray for you for that as well. Um, as we sing this song, may we be reminded that it's okay to bring our needs to the Lord. It's okay to even bring our needs to each other. And praise God who meets our needs. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Without 
One of my cousins is um, a brilliant poet um, and writer, and she's in the middle of finishing her, her PhD dissertation, which is a big deal, right? In my family, it's not a big deal till you get a doctorate. You know, any other degree you think you get doesn't count, right? Um, so it's a really big deal, and we're celebrating it. But one of the hard parts about being a writer is when you have writer's block, right? And one of the hardest parts about having writer's block is during your dissertation, you know? Um, but she shared something yesterday that I thought was just really, really beautiful. And she shared about how in this lack, in this season of need, 
she really felt God's presence and God did something. And it was something as small as like a, an old poem that she had that she submitted months ago got published, right? And it was this reminder that God sees her, that God blesses the stuff that she's doing. And she said this prayer at the end, and I, I, I thought it was just a, a fitting benediction for all of us as we think about how do we give God our need? How do we live in a way that we're opening up to our community around us? And, and she said this, and I, I want this to be our prayer. How do we do it? One day at a time, one breath at a time, one word at a time, one prayer at a time, and by faith, all the time, all the time. I finally, God, we thank you so much that all you ask is for a mustard seed of faith, that all you ask is for one breath, one word, one prayer. God, we thank you that, yes, we're a mountain of needs, Yes, even though we don't want to admit it, we're needy people. But we praise you, our shepherd, who sees us and hears us, who meets us and carries us, who you ask for us to lay our burdens at your feet. But not only can you carry them, you can carry us too. So Lord, we pray now that as we go, that we may be people who are willing to let our needs be the entry point for your movement, the entry point for your grace, the entry point for your love, your compassion, your mercy. Let our needs be given to you so that we can be healed, so that we can grow, so that we can be filled. Lord, we also pray that as we go, we go to a world that's full of needs too. So we pray that we may truly find not only ourselves and our gifts, but may we find our true gladness our true joy, our true love, and loving our neighbors as you have loved us. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you all.